Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. We're looking this morning at Isaiah 8, verse 19, to chapter 9, verse 7. So we are continuing our series uh, called Joy to the World, looking at ways that Christ has come, or that the coming of Christ brings joy to the world. And I have to say that it's been a little bit of a of an interesting and a challenging series in some ways because uh, for a number of reasons, but I, I think, you know, um, especially those of us who are in uh, maybe Dutch Reformed tradition, uh, joy doesn't necessarily come easily. We're not, I don't think anybody would ever accuse us of being uh, giddy or ecstatic or exuberantly joyful people. Um, I, <laughs> this was, this just popped into my head. Um, I'll just share it with you. So, when Lori and I got married um, 20 years ago now, uh, our, our wedding, so I, I come from, a, there's in my background a family, this, this Dutch Reformed uh, tradition. Lori did not. And so the, my side of the family was on one side of the sanctuary, Lori's side was on the other side. And we had a lot, we had a great worshipful wedding, worship songs and a uh, worship band and stuff. And the wedding video, you can see uh, Lori's side, they're all, they're dancing and they're waving their arms and they're ecstatically, joyfully praising. My side was praising as well, but extremely stoic, not moving a muscle. And I think that that's kind of uh, where some of us maybe can relate to that. The joy that we find and experience is not necessarily this, this giddy, ecstatic, ex- exuberant kind of joy. And I think we find that in Scripture as well. So a lot of the passages that we're looking at, you think, oh, we're going to have a really happy, super happy kind of a message. Well, not necessarily. The, the joy is a deep and underlying joy, a hopeful joy, even in the face of darkness and difficulty and as James says, trials and adversities and afflictions. And so uh, there is this, this deep and abiding joy, but doesn't necessarily always look like on the outward, uh, this outward appearance of exuberance and giddiness. And we find that in our text this morning as well, Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse 19 to chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Lord God, it is so good to gather in your house for worship. And it is so good, O Lord, to gather together under the authority of your word. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit would fall on us, would descend to us and enter into our hearts, O Lord, to allow us to receive fruitfully this word of yours. Lord, cultivate our hearts that your word may be planted deep in us that it may produce the fruit of transformation, that it may produce within us a deep and abiding joy, that it may be for our good and for your glory. And so we offer ourselves to you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah was a prophet uh, who ministered mainly to the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, at this time in, in uh, history, the, uh, there was a, it was a dark and stormy period in uh, Israel's history, the northern kingdom of Israel, and that had implications for the southern kingdom of Judah as well. So Isaiah kind of speaks to both situations and uh, so the events here describe what's happening, uh, especially to the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's a 
warning there for what lays ahead for the southern kingdom of Judah as well. So the prophet Isaiah says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, as I often do, I'm going to stop there because I am not, <laughs> I just thought of something that I am not going to mention in the message. So um, in the ancient Near East, uh, there was a, 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 a common uh, fact or common feature that uh, mediums and spiritists would, would consult the dead. It was uh, one of the things that they would do to try to get help for different aspects of life. And when those mediums and spiritists would relay messages from the dead, they would often do so in these like, bird-like chirps and, and, and whisper-like voices. And so that, if, if on the surface, that phrase may seem strange, but that's the meaning behind that is that when, when people would consult the dead, would relay the messages, it would come out in these chirping kinds of sounds. So when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, who chirp and whisper, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were, who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You may be seated. For many people, one of the hardest things about this time of year is, is the darkness. Uh, just a, a little more than a week, December 21st, is the winter solstice, sometimes called the longest night. It is the day with the shortest period of daylight and the longest period of darkness. And with that, for many people, comes a sense of depression and, and gloom uh, throughout the month of December, if you, if you haven't noticed, although I don't know how you could not, uh, the sun sets around 4.15. That just sounds depressing. <laughs> By 5 o'clock, it is completely dark. 
And we begin, at least if you're like, like me and like many that I've talked to, we, we begin longing for more hours of daylight, longing for when things, when, when, when the days get, begin to get a little longer again, longing for the warm evenings of summer when it's nine o'clock and still light outside. There is a dread that comes with darkness and a joy that comes with the light. And throughout the Bible, we see this, this contrast between light and darkness. The, the very first word of the biblical story in Genesis chapter 1 was a word of light. God speaking light into the darkness. The, uh, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the last word of the biblical story in Revelation 22 is, again, a word of light. A picture of a nightless existence on the new earth. There will be no more night, John says, for the Lord God will give his people light. And throughout the Bible, darkness is a picture of uncertainty and fear, of oppression, evil, and despair. We see in the Bible what a dreadful thing it is to walk in darkness. And that's where we find the, the people of God in our text this morning. The prophet Isaiah says the people of Israel and, and Judah were walking in darkness. He says they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, at this point in Israel's history, the, the darkness they were experiencing was a, was a very tangible, concrete darkness. It was the darkness of oppression at the hand of the Assyrians. The people of Israel at this point have repeatedly failed to live as God's holy people in the land. And in both the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they have conformed to the pattern of the world around them. They have mingled with the idolatry of the nations. They have walked the road of compromise under the leadership of ungodly kings. Read the, book, the, 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 uh, the chapters of First and Second Kings and over and over again, like a broken record is that ref refrain, and this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now as a means of God's discipline, they, they find themselves living in the looming shadow of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire at this point was taking the world by storm. As you can see on this map, the Assyrian Empire began in the region east of the Mediterranean Sea and then southwest of the Caspian Sea up in the upper uh, right corner. Uh, the region that now encompasses uh, parts of Turkey, Iraq, and Iran is the region in purple. That's where the, that's where the Assyrian Empire began. Under the reign of King Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian Empire was like a dark cloud that began to spread all across the land. It expanded even more under the reign of Sargon II, which is indicated by the green on the map. And you can see that it overtook the northernmost tribes of the kingdom of Israel down in that sort of the thumb that goes, the green thumb that goes down with a red star and indicates the region of Galilee. The southern kingdom of Judah, which is indicated by the brown, fared a little better than the northern kingdom of Israel uh, under the Assyrian invasions, but they too lived under this dark cloud of Assyria, which eventually, uh, over time, spread as far as Egypt, which you can see in this map. So the, both the, it started in kind of the darker green, and then it spread to the lighter green area, just kind of this, this looming, massive, expansive uh, empire that, that covered so much ground and territory. 
And part of what made this such a dark and traumatic time for Israel was the sheer brutality of the Assyrian invasions. They had massive armies, and they had the world's first and finest machines. They employed psychological terror. They impaled corpses on stakes as a scare tactic. And they would stack severed heads in heaps in front of enemy cities. I mean, the kinds of things that you would see in horror movies. They would skin their captives alive. The prophet Nahum uh, would later speak of the Assyrian city of Nineveh in these terms. He called it the city, uh, the city of blood, never without victims, with piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. The Assyrian kings would dash infants to pieces and humiliate their captives. One Assyrian king wrote how he put a, a dog chain around one of the leaders that he had captured and, and made him live in a kennel at the city gate. This is the darkness that the people of Israel were enduring. It was a darkness of distress and gloom under the sheer evil and oppression of Assyria. But Isaiah says that there is also, so there's sort of this, this surface, this external uh, oppression, darkness that they're experiencing. But Isaiah says there's also an underlying cause behind this state of darkness. And the underlying cause is that the people of Israel have forsaken God and the truth of his word. The kings of both Israel and Judah have not walked in the light of God's instruction. In fact, they've just completely forgotten about God's word altogether. And facing the threat of Assyria, they're now turning to world powers and demonic forces for help instead of turning to the living God. Like the nations around them, they're consulting mediums and witches, consulting the dead for help. Isaiah says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who, again, who whisper and mutter, who chirp and whisper, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and a testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, that is the word of God, they have no light of dawn. Do you hear what the prophet says. He says, you're in a state of deep darkness and gloom because you have forsaken the light of God's word. You've abandoned the truths of his instruction. You're turning to those who have no light of dawn. And what happens to those who forsake God's word? Again, Isaiah paints the picture so clearly. He says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. So the people of Israel were walking in the deep darkness of oppression. And the underlying cause of this darkness was that they had forsaken God and his word of instruction. And there is a word of warning here for God's people still today, isn't there? You know, the, the, the people of Israel, they, they didn't descend into darkness overnight. It, it happened over time through small acts of, of disobedience and, and sort of these subtle shifts of compromise. It seeped in like a slow-working poison. Just a, a little compromise here, a little pagan ritual there. These subtle shifts away from God's word. Is, did God really say that? Is this what God's word really means? Like sheep, they slowly wandered away from God. And so we see that the darkness of Israel isn't really very far from any of us. 
In our sinful nature, we too are prone to wander into the darkness, prone to resist and to question and to compromise the word of God. And like the people of Israel, we can sometimes find ourselves plagued by oppressive forces of darkness. And it's into this this gloom and darkness that God speaks words of hope and joy. And his words of of hope and joy come through the promise of of a great light that will shine in the darkness. And in fact, so certain is this promise of hope and joy that the prophet speaks of it in the past tense as if it's already happened, though it is a prophecy for the future. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Into the darkness of Israel's oppression and gloom, a light will shine. And God says this light will originate in This is an astounding thing, I think. So this light will originate in the very place where Assyria first struck the people of Israel. God says through Isaiah, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled, and this refers to the Assyrian invasion. In the past, he he humbled, meaning they ravaged the, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali were both tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. As you can see on this map, Zebulun is the little purple tribe with the red arrow pointing to the right, and Naphtali is the, uh, the tribe just uh, northwest of that with the arrow pointing to the, to the left. And they are both tribes just north and west of the Sea of Galilee, which is indicated by the red star. And this is where the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, delivered one of his first and his most devastating blows against Israel in the year 734 B.C. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 15, where the biblical writer says, In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. So this is where the Assyrian Asian first struck its first and it's, it's one of its most fatal and devastating blows against Israel was in this region of Galilee. So Galilee was where the darkness of the Assyrian invasion first descended. And Isaiah says that this is where the light of God will originate. So the message is clear, isn't it? That that God will reverse the history of darkness for the people of Israel. And he will do so by sending light to the very place where the darkness first struck. He will not let the darkness win. He is the God of light, and he will send a great light to overcome the darkness. It is this light that will transform his people's gloom into joy. And so the message of of Isaiah 9 is a message of of hope and joy in in this promise of of light. But this raises two questions for us this morning that I want to, that the the text answers. And so we'll, uh, as we continue our way through the text, uh, we'll turn our attention to these two questions. Number one, what is meant by this metaphor of light? And number two, by what means will this promised light come? 
And so the first question, what is meant by the metaphor of light, is answered in verses 2 through 5. The second question, uh, by what means will this promised light come, is answered in verses 6 and 7. So first, what is meant by, by, this, by the metaphor of light throughout this, this uh, text in Isaiah 8 and 9? Well, in the context of Isaiah 9, the, the metaphor of light is quite simply a metaphor of deliverance. You see, the, the darkness of God's people, that the God's people are in, is the darkness of oppression from the Assyrian invasion. And so what they most desperately need is deliverance, and that is exactly what God promises through the dawning of a light. Notice again how Isaiah describes this light that will bring such great joy. He says, For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And so the light that brings great joy is a light of deliverance from oppressive enemies. That's how Isaiah describes it. The reference to Midian's defeat, I think, is quite fascinating. Uh, uh, Midian's defeat, if you remember, that brings us all the way back to the book of Judges, to the days of the Judges, long before Isaiah's time. Midian's defeat was one of the most dramatic displays of deliverance in Israel's history. Do you remember, do you remember the story? I'll share... It with you again in case you've forgotten. The people of God were living under the oppressive rule of the Midianites. Again, this is the, the time of the judges long before Isaiah came onto the scene. And we read in Judges 6 verse 2 that the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Kind of like what's going on uh, in, now in Isaiah's time under Assyria. And the writer of Judges goes on to say that the Midianite army was as thick as locusts. Their camels, he said, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And God called out of that oppressive darkness, God called Gideon. Gideon, the least in his family and from the weakest clan of Manasseh. God called this Gideon to, del to deliver his people. So Gideon showed up with an army of 32,000 men and God, which is a really small number in comparison to the, an army as thick as locusts. 32,000 is a very small number. And yet God said to him, no, that's, that's too many. Because if you win with 32,000, there will be a little bit of glory for you and all the glory is going to go to me because you can't do anything to defeat the Midianites on your own. And so 22,000 left, and 10,000 remained. And God said, no, that's still too many. And the original army of 32,000 was eventually whittled down to just 300 men. 300 men, less than 1% of the original number. And God said, with these 300 men, I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. Now, now, think about that for a moment. From a, from a military perspective, the whole scene was absolutely absurd. I mean, you, you don't go to battle with 300 men against an army as thick as locusts. You, you don't draw up a strategy that, that sends less than 1% of your army onto the battlefield against such an, a mighty and oppressive army as the, as the Midianites. You, 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 you don't do that. I mean, who in their right mind would ever do that? But that's what Gideon did according to God's instruction. But then the story gets even more absurd because the 300 men didn't even have any weapons. 
So God sent these 300 men into the Midianite camp, armed with nothing more than trumpets, torches, and empty jars. And they broke the jars, and they blew the trumpets, and the Midianites were thrown into such confusion that they all turned on each other with a sword, with their own swords, killing each other until the whole entire army was defeated. I mean, the, the, that's one of my favorite, I mean, aside from the, the violence and the, it's just, from God's perspective, one of my favorite stories because it shows so clearly who is in control. It shows, I mean, the message through Midian's defeat was loud and clear that, that God is the one who delivers. There's, there's no deliverance outside of him. You, you don't deliver on your own. You, you don't muster up strength on your own to go into battle. You don't, you don't fight darkness with your, the light within. It is God and God alone who delivers. And now Isaiah says, as in the days of Midian's defeat, God is going to do it again. He will deliver his people once more, shattering the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. In other words, what he did to Midian, he's going to do to Assyria. The promised light that brings joy is a light of deliverance. In verse 5, the imagery of deliverance continues. Isaiah says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So complete is the deliverance of God that there will be no need for military equipment anymore. This is an echo of what Isaiah said earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, where he said the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. These are pictures of the complete destruction of all things tied to war and oppression. It's a picture of a deliverance so complete that shalom is restored. The light that dawns on those living in the land of deep darkness is the light of deliverance. God is not a God who will let darkness reign over his people. He will bring light into the world to overcome the darkness. But that brings us then to our second question, and that is, well, by what means will this light of deliverance come? We see in verses 6 and 7 that the means by which this light of deliverance will come is through the birth of a baby boy. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And this boy will become a king. Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. And not only will he be a king, but he will be the promised king in the line of David. Isaiah says he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And not only will he be the promised king in the line of David, but he will come bearing names of divine identity and significance, Isaiah says, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are divine names, names of divine attributes. And this Davidic king with a divine identity will hail from the region of Galilee. As Isaiah said in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. This is the promised king who will deliver, who will bring God's light of deliverance into our world of human birth, yet of divine identity from the region of Galilee, born as a king in the line of David, reigning over a kingdom 
that will never end. This is the one who will bring God's people from darkness and gloom into light and joy. And so the people of Israel began waiting and looking and, and longing for this one who could live up to this lofty prophecy. And there were some glimmers of light along the way, uh, some, some uh, Davidic kings who kind of poked holes in the darkness to their reign, kings like Hezekiah. But in the end, they were just glimmers. And before long, these glimmers of light were eclipsed by darkness once again. And the whole earth longed for those walking in darkness to see a great light for the day to come when people could say, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And finally, after centuries of silence and darkness, the day came. Finally, the one who could live up to Isaiah's lofty prophecy, the only one who could, who could meet all the criteria, all the requirements, all the predictions and prophecies in, in Isaiah's lofty prophecy, finally arrived into the darkness of night. An angel appeared in blazing lights to the shepherds and said, I bring you good news of great joy. that will be for all the people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. A child was born. A son was given from the line of David in the region of Galilee. One who was of human birth yet divine identity, the long-expected king whose kingdom would never end. In the tumble-down stable where baby Jesus was born, the prophecy of Isaiah, which had always pointed to the future, could now for the first time be truly spoken in the present. The people walking in darkness have now seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. See, friends, the real joy of Christmas lies in the fact that our King has come. The one who would finally and completely deliver God's people from the grip of darkness has arrived. And so John, in his gospel, said of him, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome it. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The pure joy of, of deliverance from darkness. As Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 13, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We were in the dominion of darkness, held as captives in, in the darkness by the enemy, the prince of darkness. God has rescued us from that dominion and brought us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. And again in Ephesians 5 verse 8, we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord the, the real joy of Christmas is not found in any earthly goods. The real joy of Christmas is the joy of deliverance. The promise of evil trampled into the dust. The joy of Christmas is the song of the warriors rejoicing as they divide the plunder. The joy of Christmas is Midian's defeat with yokes shattered, bars broken, rods of oppression smashed. 
the joy of Christmas is military boots destined for burning and blood-stained combat gear fuel for the fire. This is, what, this, this is what makes us the most joyful people on the planet. The king has come. The light of deliverance has dawned. And there is, and I, I so desperately want us to live in this hope and joy. There, there is no darkness that can resist his power of light. Do we, do we really understand? Do we get that? Do we, do we live that way? We, we, we ought to be able, and we, we can, through the promise of Christ, through his dawning of light, live in confident expectation that even today we can be delivered from oppressive forces in our marriages and in our relationships and in our churches and in our minds. And we live in confident expectation that even today we can see ever-increasing triumph over the power of sin in our lives. And we live in confident expectation that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. And the schemes are many. But we stand firm in the light of Christ. And we live in confident expectation that the church will stand through even the darkest of storms. When we see looming clouds and oppressive forces on the horizon, do we lose hearts? Do we despair or do we live in the confident hope and joy that comes? No, the light has come and the darkness cannot and will not overcome it. And we live in joyful hope for the day when all wars will cease and all oppressive powers and institutions will be made to bow before Christ as king. There is a town in Austria that's called Rattenburg. Uh, it's a small town. In fact, it's the smallest town in Austria with a population of around 400 people. And the reason why it is such a small town, the reason why it is so sparsely populated is because of darkness. Uh, the town is, as you can see in the picture, is nestled behind a 3,000-foot mountain called Rat Mountain. And from November... Through February, that mountain blocks out the sun. And so people don't want to live in that town, beautiful though it might be, because they can't stand to live in the darkness. This Advent season, we who are in Christ have reason for joy because we are not a people living in darkness. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Let us live in the joy of Christ, who is the light that shines in and overcomes all darkness. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, light of light, and light of the world that shines in the darkness. We praise you, we glorify you, and I pray, O oh Lord, that as you come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, that you would draw us ever deeper into the joy that comes from knowing you as the light that has dawned 
the light that shines in the darkness. Lord, we surrender to you our own fears and anxieties and over the darkness that we experience in our own lives. And I pray that your light of joy would shine into that darkness right now. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is born is given. Lord, we pray that you would lead us and move us to live in that joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.